Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, Why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to findinggeniusfoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research, and I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast now part of the Funny Genius Foundation. Uh, today I have Colin Champ. He's an associate professor at Duke University in radiation oncology. He also is a researcher in the area and a professor. So he's a man of all seasons, does many things. And uh, thanks for coming today, Colin. How are you doing? I'm great, Richard. Thanks for having me. If you would, tell me about your your uh, your different, you know, your various work. So clinically, what do you do? Research, what are you looking at? Absolutely. So uh, my, my day-to-day, I'm a radiation oncologist. I treat... Um, I specialize in breast cancer and lymphoma. And then when I'm not doing that or in the clinic, I research the impact of diet and exercise on mostly cancer-specific outcomes, uh, but also prevention of cancer. What are you trying to figure out in terms of uh, your research? Yeah, great. (laughs) Great question. It's a a bit all over the place. Well, my, my initial... So in, in training and residency, uh, I did some calorie restriction research, which which I, I've really always been into diet and exercise. But in the, in the cancer world, it, it really never had a part, uh, at least up until the time when I was training. And then we did a couple studies showing that if you calorically restricted a certain mouse model, that or either caloric restriction overall or intermittent fasting, uh, alternate daily feeding, that the breast tumors would grow uh, significantly slower and also that radiation would have much higher tumor kill and also slow tumor growth um, considerably more in those calorically restricted or fasted mice. So that kind of got me jump-started 
uh, and at least looking at how diet interacts with, with cancer treatments. And then uh, the ketogenic diet was, was a passion of mine. And we, we actually published one of the first uh, series where we had um, a handful of patients on a ketogenic diet undergoing uh, concurrent chemo radiation for brain tumors for, for glioblastoma multiforme. And we, we showed that uh, it would offset the blood sugar spike that often happens from steroids. So that was, those were two of the first studies. And, and since those, um, it, again, all over the map, we had a activity tracker study for breast cancer patients. We have a heavy lifting, intense training study right now for women with breast cancer, showing that that we can we can get some functional training in these patients to help improve uh, body composition, and also in a similar patient group, looking at the effect of intermittent fasting on body composition and a whole slew of metabolic markers. So that's been my my latest kind of passion. What uh, what biomarkers seem to signal? I guess your focus is brain cancer, but um, are there any particular biomarkers that you've observed that you know forecast cancer pretty accurately? And then uh, I wanted to ask you about diet as well. Sure. So th- this study is actually in in breast cancer patients, women with breast cancer after radiation or chemotherapy, and and frankly, it, it's really a more of a low hanging fruit of a study where we're, we're looking at these typical metabolic biomarkers just for overall general health. So we're looking at uh, insulin, IGF, IL-6, IL-8, necrosis factor, all these kind of inflammatory factors. Uh, we're doing bod pod and other tests for body composition. So really, you know, it's, I guess in a way it shows where, where we've come here, where, you know, the initial studies we're seeing if we can improve outcomes with a ketogenic diet, but then at the same time, so many of our patients are getting through treatment and in a place where they're just overall not very healthy. Uh, so really, we're just trying to get people generally healthier overall and then see what biomarkers change during that process. And then hopefully we could see whether we can influence outcomes or not. But but right now, so many patients are overweight, are metabolically dysfunctional, have poor body composition, all these things correlate with, with worse outcomes. So really we're trying to see if we could change that first and then secondarily see if these biomarkers can overlap with other cancer specific outcomes. Again, are there any specific biomarkers that seem to be more reliable than others or any that jump out at you? Um, You know, have you gotten to the point where you've observed a cohort of ketogenic diet patients that have cancer and seen what biomarkers in them kind of predict what's going to happen from there, or is this all future work? There, there's a handful of studies, you know, looking at insulin, hemoglobin A1C, blood, glu- blood glucose has been very shaky. There are intriguing studies looking at cholesterol precursors, cholesterol and estrogen precursors as well. Uh, it just hasn't been heavily looked at. In our intermittent fasting study, we're actually going to freeze a bunch of specimens and look at some of these uh, estrogen-specific and cholesterol-specific uh, uh, biomarkers as well. Though actually, at this point, I would not even—I would not even necessarily say we should call them biomarkers. But yeah, then the other ones, you know, just just the typical tumor necrosis factor, the the interleukins, the inflammatory factors. Uh, you know, these have been shown to correlate with outcomes in in several cancer types, but but definitely breast cancer. And um, these are also biomarkers that we we know that. Pe- women that are overweight or have excess adipose tissue and less muscle mass than we would like uh, tend to have uh, more of, of these, unfortunately, more of these circulating around in their serum than we'd like. So trying to see if we can we can offset this with diet. Of the diets, why do you think ketogenic 
will have the most effect or are you looking at carnivore or Mediterranean or even fasting? Like how many different diet, diet outcomes are you looking at or diet plan? So, yeah, right, right now we are looking at intermittent fasting with a low carb diet. And this is, you know, I'm, I'm a, I'm a clinician and my research is we're doing a mouse study now, but my research is primarily in humans. And one of the big issues has been, you know, there's a lot of talk about the ketogenic diet. Fortunately, to actually get a, a whole group of people to follow it uh, has been, you know, nearly impossible. There are more services coming up like Verda. Uh, we're able to track ketones a little bit better now, but to run a large scale study on the ketogenic diet has just really been nearly impossible in humans. We're hoping that simply putting them on a low carb, high quality uh, diet with intermittent fasting will achieve similar metabolic changes without having them to have to go, you know, full ketogenic or something that's really going to cause a pronounced, uh, not necessarily a drop in blood glucose, but a pronounced drop in insulin, uh, along with some ketosis production. I, I think we can see the same thing uh, through a low carb intermittent fasting diet that's much more tolerable uh, for these women. But but putting them on a on a ketogenic diet, putting them on a calorically restricted diet, it, it's just it's really difficult. Uh, we we published a paper actually looking at the caloric restricted diets in breast cancer patients. And I'm going to mess up the numbers. I think there's about 21 to 24 studies that exist and about three of them actually published their results. The rest of them just kind of disappeared into, into thin air. And, and it's highly likely because people just can't follow a lot of these diets. So first and foremost, we have to get people to actually be able to follow the diet before we could see if it's, if it's effective. Is, so it, you said it's impossible to get people to follow the diet, what, long-term or even short-term? What, what's impossible about it? What seems feasible and what seems not? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700-plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000-plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's feasible for very motivated people. I, I certainly have small groups of people that do the ketogenic diet for a large scale study based on the tools that we have right now. I, I, I guess I shouldn't say impossible, but it is extremely difficult. I think that'll probably change shortly down the road now that we have services that can assist in this regard. But to get a large enough study to show a statistically significant difference in these biomarkers for people following the actual diet is extremely, extremely difficult. Uh, especially these are, these are people that are undergoing treatment for cancer. So between chemotherapy or surgery, stress, all these other things, it, it is exceedingly difficult uh, to get people to follow such a diet. P people that are already doing these kind of things, intermittent fasting, keto, et cetera, et cetera, which is not a huge proportion, which is a tiny portion of the patients that I actually see, then it's a bit easier. But but to get someone and in, in diagnose, tell them they have cancer and put them through these new treatments, tell them they're going to have to flip their diets totally upside down is, is it's been exceedingly difficult to actually get people. Well, 
Well, why? Because they're afraid that it's going to make their cancer work or worse or what do you think is the reason that, um, you know, people are resisting or is just, is it just too hard anyway under normal circumstances? And if you have cancer and you're emotionally a mess every day, then, you know, forget about diet or what do you think the reason is? Well, just getting people to, I mean, a strict ketogenic diet, if you're getting them to eat, you know, 75% plus or minus fat is, is a big change for most people. Getting people to follow any diet is, is exceedingly difficult. It's unfortunate. It's just kind of part of part of Western uh, society these days. And so it's, it's exceedingly difficult for, for the general population. So you add layers upon layers of, of stress onto that with the cancer diagnosis, with treatment, et cetera. It's just, uh, it, it's exceedingly difficult to follow such a regimented diet. Hmm, okay. Do you know of anyone that's successfully done it or it's just, uh, like, like, what do you do then? Do you just give up or like, how could you craft a study that were actually would work? What, what do you do? You have to... <laughs> Have people yeah. like sitting in the clinic and they can't leave or what? That's a million dollar question. So yeah, you, you, you have enough resources where you can, you can feed all the participants and I mean, yeah, you can put them in a metabolic lab, which is, you know, exceedingly expensive. You can provide all their foods. You can check in with them. You could have a, a phone number that they could call at all times. You could have them take pictures of food. There are absolutely ways to, to make it happen. And that's why I shouldn't say it's impossible if, if there's enough money involved, it could happen. Um, but in the diet world, which which or in the food world, which you and I know well, there's just there aren't these billion dollar pharmaceutical companies that are you know supplying the pills and and paying several million dollars to run the study. There's it's just not that lucrative of an area. So if if there was some way to fund it, then certainly it could happen. Okay. What other avenues uh, in addition to diet are you working on, or is this you know you're all in on this? So. Yeah, the, the other issue or the other area in the cancer world that's that's really been been, been blowing up is is, di- is excuse me is exercise. Uh, unfortunately, similar to the uh, conversation we just had, it's it's also quite difficult to get uh, people to exercise, especially to get cancer patients to exercise. So you know, part of it has just been ways to increase activity levels in cancer patients, and this is you know putting activity trackers on them, et cetera. Uh, and a lot of the studies that we've we've seen in the cancer world, and I'll just focus it on breast cancer, they haven't they haven't really yielded great results. They haven't yielded great improvements in body composition. They haven't yielded improvements in those biomarkers that we have that you and I discussed um, a couple minutes back. And so the theory we have is that it's just the exercise isn't enough. And so you know, telling people to walk 30 minutes a day, five days a week, just really isn't enough to elicit those changes. Just like in the diet. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Uh, Approach, we need to really do some extreme dietary changes. Our view is that exercise is insane. So we need people lifting heavy weights, a lot of sheer stress on their bones, a lot of sheer stress on their muscles. We need hypertrophy, we need muscle tears to release IL-6 to sensitize the body to muscle-derived IL-6. You know, we need compound movements, squatting, hip hinging, those kind of things. And that, that's what's going to stop, A, stop our patients from, you know, falling as as they age. It's going to help make them resilient. Uh, but these are the, the regimens that we've yet to see in cancer populations. And, and part of it is just, there's just been fear about whether these exercise regimens are safe or not, for, especially for people that just finished cancer-specific treatment. And we know that they're safe. We know that they're safe for patients with things like lymphedema, patients that underwent radiation, et cetera. 
but there really have yet to be studies where they really pushed people to do intense workouts to yield those results that we would expect in a non-cancer population. You know, if you, if you go to a trainer or a CSCS and pay them a bunch of money to improve in all these ways, the workout that they're going to give you is dramatically different than the workouts we're putting these cancer. So we should not be expecting the same results based on that. And so the, the goal now is to start putting cancer patients through those workouts that we would you know, put the rest of the population. Yeah, I guess you would need probably an inpatient type thing in order to uh, ensure exercise was followed or diet was followed. I mean, is that just, is it incredibly expensive to do that? Or like, what would be the, um, the difficulty in doing that? Would no one want to cooperate? I mean, like what's involved in doing something like that? Yeah, you're, you're, you're spot on with that. That's our approach is it that we need to, I don't want to say observe these people, but kind of guide these people. So especially the exercise uh, and, and, and I've really view exercise and diet no different in this regard. What, what we need is fitness centers at our medical. So we shouldn't be you know, telling people to go exercise at home if we know they're not going to do it. Uh, secondly, we shouldn't be telling you know, grandma who just got treated for breast cancer to go home and do some hip hinge movement or squat or deadlift, et cetera. We should, we should be doing you know, FMS screens on them, make sure they're mobile and then prescribing them exercise regimens, just like we would prescribe our radiation. And we should have them come into our facility and then have someone observe them do it both as motivational, but also to ensure that it's safe. And so from an exercise point of view, I think that's much easier. So in our study, we have them coming in three days a week. Well, we had them coming in three days a week, COVID pretty much destroyed that. But at Duke, we have a, we have a diet and fitness center where we have exercise physiologists that helped make the workout regimens. They observe the individuals doing the exercise regimens to make sure that they're doing them correct and safely. And that's the way we're going to get people to see these changes, not just send them home or, or tell them to walk. And to your point, the dietary changes is going to be, it's going to have to be pretty similar. I'm not saying have them come in for every meal, but use home devices, whether it's Zoom or, or whatnot. But these patients just need to be checking in or these people need to be checking in often uh, to ensure that they're following things correctly. Are you able to compensate people or do you have to compensate them? And would that help? Or do you think that would just skew the results? <laughs> well, actually, uh, there, there are some studies where, where they looked into that. Uh, our thought, the, the great thing with the exercise study is they're, they're kind of indirectly compensated where we give them a free exercise regimen, uh, you know, using a state-of-the-art facility. So that's their compensation uh, and then, you know, we're, we're running the, the study on them and we're measuring things, et cetera, but, a, but a three, a free three day a week regimen being observed by, you know, top of the line exercise physiologist is, is pretty good, uh, pretty good compensation in my eyes. The, the food, the food, uh, thing gets a little, the food question gets a little more, more difficult. And I, I think that's where places have struggled. How do the people in the cohort feel? Have you, have you or someone else talked to them? You know, even though I guess you could express the value, like, you know, we're going to give you access to equipment and training and all that, that normally would be thousands of dollars or just the public just can't get, you know, in return for your participation. But have you told them that? And they're like, Oh, wow. Or do they just say, ah, who cares? Like what, what's the update? <laughs> yeah. There. So it, same thing with the diet. There, there's a cohort of people. And I always call these like the Lululemon women that, that come in to see me for their consultations coming straight from the gym. And any, any of these things, they're 100% in. 
problem is those aren't necessarily the people that we need to change their their behaviors or their activity levels. So it's really getting those those other individuals in. And from an exercise point of view, it, it has been very attractive. From a dietary point of view, it's it's been a bit more difficult. But there's certainly a cohort of the population out there where you say, you know, we're going to throw you in the bod pod. We're going to give you your body composition. We're going to give you these labs. We're going to track things. We're going to have Zoom meetings. We're going to have people checking in with you periodically. We're going to be doing these free workouts. But yeah, they're immensely attractive to enough of the population to run a study. Uh, unfortunately, not enough of the population to really turn the corner in health for, for a lot of these a lot of these individuals. On the um, radiation oncology side, are you involved in any research or you know, since you work on that stuff, what, um, I don't know what nuances or interesting things are to be known about radiation oncology. Sure. So we're doing most of our studies now on the radiation side of things are reducing the dose. Uh, so traditionally radiation had to be given in very small doses and that's every day, usually Monday through Friday, depending on the situation. And it's, it's given in small doses because it gives the normal tissues time to recover from the DNA damage that happens to them. Um, but the cancer cells don't necessarily recover as much as they should. So we used to give these very long, like six to eight week courses where these patients would come in every day, Monday through Friday for weeks on end with these small amounts of radiation. Well, now we have all these new technologies. One's called stereotactic body radiotherapy, stereotactic radiosurgery. Uh, we can implant radioactive seeds. Uh, and so what it does is it bypasses the normal tissues surrounding these areas. So for instance, the heart is a big one with breast cancer. If you're treating a left-sided breast cancer, the radiation fields used to just pass right through the heart and also in front of the heart, which is a left anterior descending artery. That's, that's the one that oftentimes um, is clogged during a heart attack. So now we have technologies where we can spare these things. We have women take a deep breath in, it pulls the chest wall away from the heart. The machine turns on when they breathe back out and the ribs move closer to the heart, the machine turns. We also have these techniques where our radiation beams move around patients, shooting thousands of beams, focusing on one area. So we can get very high doses of radiation therapy to these small areas while sparing normal tissue around them. So it's, it's actually a double-edged sword because my, my research started because we have so many interactions with these patients that I always thought it was a great time to get them to get on a better diet or start exercising during six weeks of treatment. Now, for most breast cancer patients, we're, we're getting them in and out in, in a week to three weeks. So that's kind of the, the latest and greatest uh, excitement in the radiation field. And there, there's also a lot of preclinical research looking at altering metabolism to improve the efficacy of radiation. And that's, a, that's an exciting area. It's just it's really still in, in petri dishes and in mice for, at this point. Yeah, I've heard that uh, some protocols are to fast for 24 hours up until the time of chemotherapy or radiation. Do you have patients that do that? And if they do, do they tell you? And do you log results? Or, you know, clinically, are you not allowed to touch that kind of stuff? Great question. So we do get people that are doing a lot of these things on their own, because unfortunately, there aren't a ton of protocols out there. My, my buddy, Rainer Clement, who's at uh, Leopoldino in Germany, actually has a study where they're doing exactly that. They're, they're fasting prior to treatment or on a ketogenic diet. Uh, I do have patients that uh, have, I had a woman that was on a week fast prior to starting her treatment. So she, we will certainly track these things and I will follow them closely to make sure they're doing it safely. You know, knowing that we don't exactly know 
the effect, you know, some, some of the data from, from California looked at fasting uh, before and after chemotherapy. That was up, I think it was up to 48 hours and they reported lower side effects to potentially improve outcomes, but these were in small patient numbers. Um, so that, that's another example of, I'm sure those were very motivated people that, that he reported on uh, over there. And just like our ketogenic diet study that we reported on back in, I think 2013, th those were patients coming to us saying, we're going to do this ketogenic diet. We're already following it uh, or we're interested in following it. And we followed them very closely. We recorded everything. And that, that's why we re reported that study. Uh, but that was, I think, six or seven people. And it was an immense uh, amount of work. But now there are uh, devices. There's some breath ketone breathalyzers that, that are work pretty darn well. So I'm excited to see when, when they get out and patients start using them to quantify their levels of ketosis or fasting. If this was the, uh, you know, the gold standard, to fast, to be on a ketogenic diet, et cetera, for cancer patients, what percentage of them do you think would listen, comply? What's your guess? That is the million dollar question. I still think that, I, I want to say pre-2019, pre I, would, I would have said I would have said five or 10%. Now that we have, and I'm, I'm an advisor to Verta, so I, that's my conflict before I say this, but now that we have companies like Verta Health out there that can track people and, and help them to do it, uh, if, if, if we knew the ketogenic diet helped improve outcomes, I think companies like that would be part of the standard of care. And we would, I think doctors would love to just send their patients to these companies and have them put them on these diets and track them. So I think with, with those resources, we could see it, I would see it hitting in the 70%. It, and that all being said, there are plenty of, of cancer treatments that, that work, systemic treatments, chemotherapy, et cetera. Uh, that we know work, they're just similar to that, just difficult for people to take. So everything has its uh, has its difficulties when it comes to treating cancer. Yeah, but if seventy percent complied, that's a lot. You know what? Yeah, I yeah. mean, yeah, yeah no, no. You just have to find out find out about it themselves, or I mean, I guess yeah, that's the only way is to find out and to try it. But with, like, what what percentage of patients do you guess are doing quote unquote everything right, or you know, on a ketogenic diet and fasting and all that? Can you tell? Very few, very few patients. I, I would, I used to run a clinic. I, I used to run a clinic that was strictly to discuss these types of things with patients. So it's kind of a cancer prevention clinic. Uh, and I would, I would see people that would come from afar to discuss these things, but it was, it was few and far between. Uh, and, and, and that all being said, we, you know, we don't have great data in humans that, that there is benefit to any of these things except for for weight loss and you know glucose control and, and lowering of, of insulin and that's why that's why my goal is to run those types of studies to show that it's safe to show that it changes these things in a cancer population and then stepwise increase them to start looking at cancer specific so what do you think is going to be the way forward that has any chance of success where's it going to come from and how so as much as I'm not a huge fan of uh, pills and potions, I, I think exogenous ketone esters are an intriguing way to see. Now they're not they're not the ketogenic diet; they're they're very different, but they are an interesting way to see if ketones themselves can affect several different areas of cancer treatment. And all these issues that we're discussing are obvious. Well, many of these issues we're discussing are obviously alleviated by taking a simple gel cap. But that being said, it's, it's still too difficult to take 
uh, too high doses of exogenous ketone esters because they can cause some gastric uh, issues. Uh, we're actually setting up a, a pharmacokinetic study right now with an exogenous ketone ester. So that is an area that, that's really intriguing to me because I think that'll adequately let us let us test some things before we need to go full-blown into the diet. Secondly, I, I, I do think it's coming that we're going to be able to run these big studies that we're discussing with lots of patients on the diet because they're going to be watched extremely closely and the failure rates are going to be are going to be much lower because of all the tracking. And so I'm I'm excited to see that because we can start finally answering these questions. I mean the, the ketogenic diet field is just full of of mouse studies and mouse models that that aren't at this point for various reasons translating well to humans. And there's just really been a lack of mouse to human studies. And so now we just get a a bunch of review articles every week on, on ketogenic diets while the, the real studies that need to, to happen aren't happening. Is there any any evidence you see, you know, again, in the occasional patients that do follow this these protocols, even though people say it's anecdotal? I mean, what do you <laughs> see that informs you? Well, the, the initial, so I used to, I don't really treat uh, brain cancer anymore. When I, when I treated glioblastoma a lot more and during my training, which was at an institution that really pulled in catchment of, of ketogenic diet patients from, or excuse me, uh, glioblastoma patients from all around the East Coast. Um, I saw a lot more of it because that's where the initial preclinical studies were. The initial mouse studies were in GBM. I, I saw a couple incredible results that, yeah, they're anecdotal, so I can't say what, what they were from, but I, I did see a recurrent uh, GBM patient that was on a couple different metabolic therapies and the ketogenic diet that I lost touch with. And then her sister messaged me like seven years later, which I don't know any, any recurrent GBM patient that has lived seven years. So it's an, certainly an N equals one, but happened to be on the diet and doing those things. So can't, can't say what caused what, but it was, it was certainly intriguing and just, just kind of an awesome story to, to know that she was still doing well. Oh, that's excellent. Well, very good. Uh, Colin, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Sure. They can go to my, my website is colinchamp.com. That's just kind of my articles and in musings. Um, I usually talk about some of my research on there. I have a newsletter on there uh, where I talk about my general views along with my research. And then, um, you know, just, just PubMed is where you'll see my, my latest articles coming out. Sorry, you can, uh, Leonardo's legacy is my most recent book where we actually discuss a lot of these things like the ketogenic diet, fasting, and different uh, dietary and exercise approaches for cancer prevention. Very cool. Well, Colin, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having me. Appreciate it as well. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.